Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're doing an episode I've long looked looked forward to. It's the Romans. We're just going to talk about the Romans and how Rome changed from a republic to an empire. And not, not just the history of that, but the political theory, how Roman political theory changes from the republican period to the imperial period. Uh, And I'm very excited to do this. I think it's a fun, fun thing to talk about. And it is going to have, I think, some potential interesting implications for contemporary situations. Usually we get to that by the back half of the episode. But we're going to start off by doing a little bit of of scene setting for you. And we're going to pull in this episode mainly from Cicero and Seneca the Younger. We will also talk a little bit about Clifford Ando, the classicist and his book uh, on imperial ideology and provincial loyalty in the Roman Empire, which uses some Frankfurt School influence perspectives to uh, draw out some of the legitimation mechanics that are embedded in this period. Uh, but, but to start, I want to start with the concept of Roman citizenship, because the concept of Roman citizenship plays a big role in structuring everything in, in Roman thought and in setting up the conflict that is going to produce the collapse of the Republic. Uh, so the, the thing about Roman citizenship is that Roman, Roman citizens uh, are in this entangled relationship with the Roman state where they have legal rights that they get as Roman citizens. And in exchange for having those legal rights recognized by the Roman state, they have to comply with Roman law. So if you comply with Roman law, then you are protected by Roman law, but Roman law can also make demands on you. So it's a kind of reciprocal political relationship between the citizens and the state. And in classical thought, oftentimes the state is thought of as a city, so much so that one of the Roman words for city, there's, of course, herbs, which is straightforwardly city, but there's another related term for city called kiwitas, which is very related to the Roman, uh, the Latin word for citizen, kiwis. And a kiwitas is a collection of citizens. And it's the abstract entity which comes into being when you have a collection of citizens, all part of the same collective project. Uh, and that, that abstract uh, combination is, I think, a very distinctive thing. The Romans don't just think of a city as a place with a group of people who happen to live there. It's also the thing that comes into being when you have people with a a certain kind of political commitment, all sharing that political commitment together and pooling that political commitment together to make a collective that is bigger than any of them individually. It's a very collectivist kind of idea. And so one of the things that's distinctive about Roman citizenship is that not everybody gets it. For the Romans, some people get citizenship and some people don't get it. The Romans do give citizenship to women, although women have certain legal restrictions. Those restrictions change a bit over the course of Roman history. 
This makes them different from the Greeks who don't give citizenship to women generally. Uh, And they give citizenship to people who uh, have performed services for the empire. Very often citizenship is used as a carrot, as something to get people embedded in the empire. If they have a promise that they could get Roman citizenship, that gives them a reason to work with the Roman state. And that becomes a mechanism of of inducing people in uh, newly acquired territory to cooperate because the Romans do not have rules for citizenship for, uh, that are mainly based around ethnicity or language or uh, race or anything like that. Uh, very early in the history of the Republic, citizenship is initially restricted to people from Rome and then to people from Italy, but it gradually gets expanded out as the Romans uh, realize that they can use citizenship as this enticing tool to get people to cooperate and to play along. Uh, that said, uh, while the Romans exclude people like slaves from citizenship, slaves are held by force and they're not expected to want to be there or to willingly participate in the society. The Romans don't expect the, the slaves to uh, agree to be slaves. They do include within the category of citizenship both plebeians and patricians, patricians being wealthier citizens from storied family lineages and the plebeians being poorer citizens. Now, initially, even the plebeians would have been landowning farmers. Early in Roman history, even the plebeians owned land. They didn't own nearly as much land. They were smaller farmers, but they did have land. They did have property. Over the course of Roman history, there is a concentration of land ownership. Land in Italy becomes more and more concentrated under smaller and smaller numbers of increasingly very, very rich patricians. These patricians run their large estates with slaves that have been taken in the Roman wars of expansion on these big plantations called latifundia. As the land becomes more and more concentrated, more and more plebeians are pushed out of land ownership. And it it was very sad how this would happen because the Roman army during the Republican period was a kind of... uh, of, uh, draft system where you could be drafted into the army if there was a need. And of course, one of the uh, drawbacks of Roman citizenship was that you were subject to that draft. And so people would be drafted into the Roman army. They would go out, they would fight in, in a war, in wars of conquest for the Roman state. They would take slaves in the course of those wars that would go back home to Italy. And then they would come home and they would find that their family had had to sell the land, that the land had been uh, pillaged or burned by somebody, sometimes extra legally in a, in a shady kind of way, and the value of it had been depressed and the family had sold it at a distressed price, uh, and that the people who had bought the land from them were much richer than they were and were using the slaves that they might have taken in their wars of conquest to work that land. So there were a lot of people serving in the Roman army, coming back, losing their ancestral land, uh, not receiving any new plots of land. And these people were frustrated. They were martial. They had fighting skill. uh, And they tended to pour into the city of Rome looking for work, looking for fortune. A lot of them got involved in the collegia, these, these gangs that roved around Rome. 
And these gangs were initially relatively benign institutions for helping to organize neighborhoods. But during this period, they get more violent and more gangy and uh, more lawless. Rome gets very overcrowded, overpopulated. It gets dirty. It gets filthy. Um, They don't have very good infrastructure for managing the huge influxes of people. And you get a set of reforms uh, by a Roman general, Gaius Marius, uh, to put these uh, landless people into the army for long periods of time, terms of more than a decade and eventually more than two decades in length, with the promise of a plot of land at the end of the term of service. This ends up being the solution after uh, Prior to Marius, the Gracchi, these land reformers, attempt to redistribute land in Italy and are killed for their attempts to redistribute the land. So instead of redistributing the land in Italy, the solution is to have uh, the army be professionalized and to promise plots of land as pensions. So all of these people who are landless uh, but have citizenship rights and are expecting to be taken care of by the state or expecting the state to be in some kind of positive relationship with them, these people end up career soldiers for the Roman army. And of course, because they're career soldiers, they are very anxious to make sure that when they finish their term of service, they do get the plot of land at the end. And so it's very important that the general who's leading them be considered legitimate by the Roman state, because if the general who's leading them is stripped of legitimacy, then they might in turn be stripped of legitimacy through proxy. And if they're stripped of legitimacy, then their claims to land might not be honored by the Senate. So there's a lot of loyalty to the specific general that is leading you if you're in the Roman army at this stage, because that general is your meal ticket. And if that general's political career goes off the rails because you served in the wrong army under the wrong leader, you might get the shaft. So this is the the kind of dangerous situation that's getting going, where you have a large number of people who have citizenship, are meant to be citizens of the state. They're not slaves. They think that they're entitled to be treated with a level of respect. Uh, These people are increasingly dispossessed, increasingly economically precarious. The solution has been to make them career soldiers. So they have intense military training. They're very good at fighting and killing. And their pension, their light at the end of the tunnel is fragile and can easily be threatened if a Roman general is disgraced. So this is the kind of uncomfortable situation that is getting built up in the late Roman Republic, Uh, all because nobody would do land reform, nobody would protect the land rights of the plebeians or make sure that the plebeians would be able to maintain uh, land holdings. So as all of this is going on, of course, the generals that are leading these armies recognize that their soldiers are intensely loyal to them on a personal level because they're economically dependent on their generals for survival. And the generals begin to use this to gain political power in the Republic by threatening the Senate with their, with their armies. 
And you get a few different generals who try to push the Senate around. Of course, Marius, the author of the Marian Reforms, attempts to push the Senate around. Uh, and the problem is that the Senate's solution to this, to this tends to be to support and get behind some other general. So in the late Republic, the situation devolves into this balance of power situation where you have different generals checking each other in unstable unstable balances, unstable uh, relations. So initially you have Marius versus Sulla, where Sulla is used to get rid of Marius. And Sulla uh, is made dictator. And after a short period of time, Sulla voluntarily gives up the dictatorship, claiming that he's restored the Republic by protecting it from Marius. But of course, after Sulla, it doesn't come to an end. One of Sulla's uh, lieutenants, Gnaeus Pompey, becomes an, another big leading general, and Pompey uses his army to exercise a level of influence over the Senate. And uh, to check Pompey, Crassus, the richest man in Rome, the one who has acquired the most land in Italy, and who is rumored potentially to have purposefully burned a lot of people's land to buy it at distressed rates, uh, he becomes another leading Roman general with another big army. And they look like they're going to come to blows after the Third Servile War, in which Pompey steals credit for putting down the slave revolt by Spartacus. Uh, Pompey steals the credit, even though Crassus does most of the work, uh, until the two are, are kind of come together in a pact with a third person, Julius Caesar. Uh, and Julius Caesar is made consul, and while Crassus and Pompey go off to their provinces to manage their provinces, Caesar is put in charge of uh, managing the senators at home. Caesar antagonizes the senators so much that the senators become totally fed up with him, and Pompey and Crassus try to find a way to sideline him by pushing him into a governorship in Gaul. Uh, Caesar refuses to be sidelined and goes on uh, nearly a 10-year-long, I, I think it's nine year long, uh, Gaelic War, wherein he annexes a series of Gaelic states using Roman alliance structure as the legitimating story. Caesar will say in his commentaries on the Gaelic Wars that this particular Gaelic tribe was being menaced by this other tribe. The first tribe was allied to Rome, therefore we had to defend them. And then when we got there, we found that there were these other tribes menacing, these other tribes that we'd just become friends with. And we had to, of course, help them too, because they're our new friends. Uh, and this chain of defending friends takes Caesar all around Gaul uh, and eventually results in the annexation of, of the bulk of Gaul. Now, the Roman Senate did not authorize Caesar's adventure in Gaul. Caesar becomes very popular because he sends home huge numbers of slaves when he's in Gaul and huge amounts of, of riches. Crassus, in an attempt to one-up Caesar, tries to do the same thing in Persia, but Crassus is much less talented as a general. He's a much more effective businessman than he is a general, and he is killed by the Persians. And the Persians famously, or so the story goes, pour molten gold down Crassus's throat to mock him for being rich. Now, I think th uh, the version of this is, is that he, this is done to him after he's dead, not while he's alive. 
Um, but it's where you get that trope of someone pouring some kind of molten metal on somebody else. Uh, so this eliminates Crassus from contention. Uh, from there, Pompey and Caesar are still stuck together because Caesar had Pompey marry his daughter. Uh, Caesar's daughter dies. At that point, the relationship breaks down. The Senate is pushing Pompey to deal with Caesar because the Senate always likes to play the generals off against each other to keep them more limited in influence. Um, the Senate tries to push things to a head by trying to have Caesar arrested for illegal warfare. If Caesar is arrested and disgraced, his troops might not have their uh, land pensions honored by the Senate. Therefore, the troops are going to stay loyal to Caesar, and Caesar uses that to invade Italy and set about destroying the Republic. Uh, he's eventually able to defeat Pompey, and from there he is made dictator. Of course, then the senators murder him, and you get another round of this infighting, what's called the Second Triumvirate, uh, with Mark Antony, Caesar's general, uh, Octavian, Caesar's nephew and adopted son, and a man called Lepidus, who is always the third man in, in the Second Triumvirate. People don't pay very, nearly as much attention to him, the poor guy. Uh, this is basically the map of how the Republic comes apart in terms of the historical context. Now, all throughout this period, you've got these Senate oligarchs who are writing and commenting on what's going on. And chief among these is Cicero, Marcus Tullius Cicero, whose, whose last name, the way Roman names work, the first name is, is just a first name, Marcus. The second name is the family name, Tullius, of the Tullii. Uh, the third name is often a kind of inherited nickname. And in Cicero's case, Cicero means chickpea. So perhaps not the most complimentary inherited nickname. Um, but Cicero becomes a major, major figure. And I think he's had more influence on political theory than any other singular Roman author. And I don't think that's a very controversial claim to make. Uh, Cicero has a very negative attitude toward these generals. Cicero views these generals as uh, self-seekers, people who are trying to make themselves kings or to uh, accumulate power at the expense of re Republican state institutions. And he views them as, a, as kind of indicative of a moral decline in which Roman citizens are looking after themselves instead of looking after the polity. That there's been a kind of estrangement between citizens and, and the civitas and, and the Roman state, uh, the res publica. And... Cicero is right that there has been this estrangement, but he pitches it in very moralizing terms. For Cicero, these generals are the problem because these generals are insufficiently committed to the state and are putting themselves first. And these generals are inflaming conflict between the plebeians and the patricians and driving this conflict because if they can split the Roman state, they can use that split to empower themselves. So on Cicero's narrative, the generals are the bad guys. And of course, what this elides 
is the extent to which these generals come out of a, a structural situation in which there's a group of people who have been given Roman citizenship, who have been deprived of the things they need to, to be effective Roman citizens, and who have been forced by reforms that have been enacted by the Roman state into the army as a way of dealing with that. And that core problem of the land distribution in Italy, of the large number of Roman citizens who aren't economically in a position to exercise the role that citizens in ancient polities are supposed to exercise, that is the big structural boogeyman that doesn't really get addressed by Cicero. Despite this, Cicero has a very compelling vision of how it's all supposed to work. Cicero's vision of citizens and the state acting in, in, these recipro in this reciprocal way where the citizen glorifies themselves by defending the state and protecting the state and advancing the state's interests and never pursues the false glory in which the individual gains at the expense of the state and the expense of its institutions and liberty has had enduring popularity in the history of thought. But it's worth noting that Cicero himself doesn't win out in this political conflict. Cicero runs afoul of the second triumvirate, uh, specifically Mark Antony and Octavian. And Octavian always says that it was Antony's idea, but it very well may have been Octavian's idea. He was clever and, and liked to tell good stories. Uh, but when Antony and Octavian first get together and form their alliance, an alliance which eventually breaks down with Octavian defeating Antony at the Battle of Actium. Uh, Octavian and Antony draw up a list of people who ought to be killed. And Cicero's name is at the top of that list. And Antony loathed, loathed Cicero and famously told Cicero that uh, if Cicero was not loyal to him, he would cut off Cicero's soft pink hands and nail them to the rostra, uh, the kind of place where information in Rome is, is uh, centrally publicly available to people. Um, and that's what, that's what happens. Cicero's hands are cut off and nailed to the rostra, and that's the end of Cicero. And oftentimes, because Cicero has this enduring popularity, uh, there, the death of Cicero is treated as the end of the Roman Republic. Uh, and the killing of Cicero is kind of treated as this great big sin that is one of those core sins in the fall of the Republic. But Roman political thought does go on and the Roman state does go on. And when I teach the Roman thought topic to students, one of the things I'm always amazed by is that a lot of students think that when the Roman Republic falls, that's pretty close to the end of the Roman state itself. And of course, that's not true. The Roman state becomes an empire shortly before the year zero, a couple of decades before the year zero. And the Roman Empire continues in the West for almost 500 years. And it continues in the East for almost 1,500 years, which is a very, very long time. 
And the peak in terms of living standards uh, and prosperity is generally thought to have been the second century, the 100s, which is more than 100 years after the Roman state becomes an empire. So there's a lot of additional history and a lot of additional political thought in what, what's called the Principate period, the period of Roman princeps. The princeps in uh, the Roman Empire is the first citizen, a, a word that doesn't straightforwardly mean emperor, although we translate that word to emperor uh, in contemporary discussions of the Roman Empire. The word literally means first citizen, and it's telling that the Romans choose to use a word like citizen, that Augustus in particular, that's what Octavian becomes after he becomes emperor. His name becomes Augustus. Um, Augustus chooses to frame himself as first citizen and not as a king, not as an emperor, not as any other kind of heavily authoritarian figure. And in calling himself first citizen, he's emphasizing this quintessentially Roman connection between himself and the state that he as first citizen lives in the service of the state and that all princeps, all first citizens, all emperors are living in service of the state and their glory is the state's glory. But there's a shift in that the recognition between the Republican law and the citizen becomes more heavily personalized around the emperor over time. And so the recognition that's going on here is between the emperor and, and the people, where the emperor is recognizing the, the rights of citizenship that belong to the people and recognizing that those people are under the emperor's protection. And in return for that, the citizens are recognizing the identity of the emperor and the emperor's status and standing within the Roman Republican constitution. So you've still got this reciprocal relationship between citizens and the state, but it's getting more heavily personalized around the emperor. The emperor is becoming responsible for maintaining the Roman legal order and for keeping the Roman peace Peace becomes a very important concept in the Principate. It's not in the Republican period, but Augustus pitches himself very much as the peacekeeper. And for Augustus, there are several senses in which the Roman emperor maintains the peace. So, of course, one is that the Roman emperor defends the borders of the empire. And Augustus begins this practice of speaking of Rome as having natural borders, certain rivers that are the, the natural boundaries of the empire, the Rhine, the Danube, the Euphrates. The emperor defends the borders. Also, the emperor pacifies the territories that have been acquired by the Roman state. And when we say pacifies, we are, we are saying imposes Roman law and thereby renders peaceful. So in these territories like Gaul or Spain, before the coming of the Romans, there are lots of different polities, lots of different tribes, lots of different groups that are often in endemic conflict with one another. The Romans end conflict in the area by subjecting all of the people in the area to Roman law and to Romanization. There is a carrot and a stick element in that insofar as if the local elites in the tribes, in the cities, go along with this, 
they or their children might potentially eventually be given Roman citizenship and opportunity for advancement, they will still get a lot of local autonomy and control over what's happening in the immediate area. There will be improvements in infrastructure. There will be roads, aqueducts, all of that. Uh, trade goods from all over the place, far away, stuff that they previously couldn't get. So their living standard will go up. They'll still have a significant level of local autonomy. And they have some possible future potential for advancement within the political framework of the Roman state itself. And Roman emperors over the life of the empire come from many places outside of Italy. There are Spanish emperors, Gaelic emperors, emperors from Syria, emperors from North Africa. Emperors from lots and lots of different places, Thrace, Greece, Illyria. Uh, that's, that's the second, the second sense. And of course, if, if you don't take the carrots, the Romans will hit you with the sticks. If an area is endemically rebellious, the Romans will come and they will sack a city and engage in uh, an act of brutal massacre and enslavement to intimidate other cities in the vicinity. But that a lot of ancient states would engage in that kind of behavior. The thing that is distinctive about the Roman state is that there is also the carrot possibility, in addition to the willingness of the Roman state to use that stick. Uh, so that's the second kind of, of peace maintenance that the Roman state performs. The third is, of course, securing you against usurpers and against civil conflict. Uh, for the Roman emperor to do this, the Roman emperor has to clearly demonstrate capacity all of these capacities that are associated with Augustus in particular, the capacity to maintain the peace in these three different senses. And if it looks like the Roman emperor doesn't have that capacity, someone else might say, I can serve the empire, I can serve the state better than this emperor does. And if someone pitches themselves as a usurper, the mere fact that people are pitching themselves as usurpers is sufficient to corrode that sense of legitimacy surrounding the emperor. The Roman state relies on what they call consensus et concordia, a consensus around the identity of the emperor, a consensus that is in the Roman people. And if that consensus surrounding who the emperor is breaks down, that itself legitimates attempts to replace or depose the emperor. Because one of the things the emperor is principally responsible for is maintaining the consensus. Right? So, you don't get some kind of divine right element. There is deification of some Roman emperors, particularly for the benefit of Eastern provinces in which it was routine for kings to be treated as demigods. But that isn't the main legitimating mechanism in the Roman Empire. It's not mainly something like divine right of kings. It's not mainly religious. There are a lot of different religious and philosophical traditions existing in the Roman Empire, and no one tradition is universalized. So instead, the argument is, is very almost Hobbesian. It's very much about the emperor's ability to protect and to secure peace. And because of that, anything that corrodes that can start a snowball effect where the legitimacy of the emperor is rapidly corroded. And that leads to a, an endemic incidence of usurpation and civil war. The Roman Empire always has some threat of this and some amount of it 
going on at almost every stage of its history, at some periods where it's more stable, some where it's less stable. But there's always some element of this threat of usurpation because it's based on this, this capacity argument, this capacity to do these specific things. It's not that the emperor has some kind of natural inherent goodness or worthiness. It has to be constantly demonstrated and reinforced. Now, the advantage of this is that very bad emperors are eliminated quickly uh, and don't cause a lot of damage. The disadvantage is that once you get usurpation going, it often becomes hard to stop that. So once you get into a period where there's been a usurper recently, then there will tend to be more usurpers. And it will get harder and harder to impress people enough that they don't attempt usurpation. And this comes to a head in the crisis of the third century. This is in the 200s, when there are huge, huge numbers of usurpers. And no one, even very capable emperors, is able to provide that level of awe to a scale that is sufficiently intimidating. Even someone like uh, the Emperor Aurelian, who famously puts down a number of different rebellions and expels a number of different foreign invaders. Even he is only able to reign for five years before there is usurpation, uh, in part because someone who feared that they were going to be murdered by Aurelian uh, tells the praetorians, who are in, uh, the, the guardsmen who are in pot- position to potentially murder an emperor, that the emperor intended to take a rep- action against them. So someone who feared the emperor lies to get someone else to do the dirty work for them in, in the case of Aurelian. Um, This spiraling conflict, you would think would be the end of the empire, but there it isn't because you get an emperor by the name of Diocletian who comes up with a set of reforms to concentrate control of the Roman legions into a very small number of hands so that there are a smaller number of people who are potentially in position to act as usurpers. He creates what's called the Tetrarchy, the rule of four. And... uh, Under the Tetrarchy, you still have a level of instability because the four people, the two senior emperors and the two junior emperors, can still get in a conflict with each other and can still fight each other. And you still have occasions after Diocletian in which one of them establishes universal rule over the whole empire. But because you are concentrating the legions more heavily in smaller hands, you get less civil war. Now, the downside of that is that you become more dependent on the capacity of those people because those people are controlling more legions, which means they have more responsibility, and they're harder to remove through usurpation. So if they're not good, they're harder to get rid of. So the dominant becomes more secure against usurpation. That's what this is called, the period after Diocletian. The emperors stop being referred to as princeps or first citizen and start being referred to as dominus or master or lord. And so beginning with Diocletian, we call the Roman Empire the dominant rather than the principate. During during this period of the dominant, you are more secure against civil war, but you're less secure against foreign invasion because you're more likely to have incompetent emperors that you can't get rid of who rule for long periods of time. And that eventually results in the dissolution of the Western Empire. The dominant extends the life of the empire by roughly another 100 years or so, uh, but the Western Empire is eventually done in by a series of poor emperors in increasingly difficult situations that are increasingly too demanding for them to cope with. And that's basically a short history of the Roman Empire to give 
you a sense of context, dear listener, if you're not up on on such things. Uh, and we've talked a little bit about where where Cicero fits into this as the, the theorist at the end of the Roman Republic giving a very compelling vision of what the Roman Republic is meant to be. And yet being killed, being liquidated, and all of that going away, because that vision, as in, inspiring as it is, wasn't able to account for this problem of land distribution and this problem of using the military as a solution, as a patch for the land distribution problem. That's more exposition than I usually give on these episodes, but you think I covered it, Edmund, or did I leave something? Do you have any questions about any of that? Yeah, I can't think of any major periods of history you missed out there from the Roman Republic, Principate and Dominate. I think that uh, one interesting thread through that, um, though it's something that Seneca isn't too interested in because he's not too interested in his institutions, and Cicero kind of dismisses because he's uh, into the aristocracy and a member of the aristocracy himself. Yeah, the land distribution problem. Uh, it's, yeah, it's something that, as you say, couldn't be resolved by just uh, settling and accepting it, and it couldn't be resolved uh, solely by the Marian reforms. And it, it kind of links to Walter Schiedel's book, The Great Leveller, that it often, to get through periods where you get inequality fueled sclerosis, there needs to be some kind of um, relative levelling that occurs. And the Civil War uh, does that to some degree. Um, but of course, by the end of the Principate, uh, the levels of, uh, and then by the end of the Dominate, the levels of inequality are uh, uh, sky high and higher than uh, at the end of the Republic. But yeah, I guess there is also a degree to which, as well as these institutional changes, the formation of the Principate, uh, and then you know, before that, the, the Marian reforms, and the attempts in the uh, second century BCE by the, by the Gracchi to try to uh, sort this problem out through some kind of class struggle-induced uh, redistribution. All of those things, some of those things happened, some of those things didn't happen, but it was at least partly through violent levelling, partly through civil war, that uh, that some of the institutional problems coming from inequality and land distribution were overcome or postponed. Yeah, it's worth talking a little bit about how did they deal with the, the inequality problem in the Principate? So one, of course, is that the first citizen, the princaps, is positioned as a kind of mediator between the Senate, between the, the patricians and the plebeians. The princaps, because the princaps is not, has, draws on support from both uh, and operates from a consensus, which, which includes both, is free to try to mediate 
conflicts between the two. There's also a set of, of basic things that get done that are, are just, just smart. You know, for instance, the creation of the anima system. The uh, anima system in Rome delivers a grain subsidy to anybody who's locally in Rome. Uh, you get very, very heavily subsidized bread. And that grain shipment comes from Africa. Ships from Carthage take that grain to Rome, and the Roman state subsidizes those ships. By subsidizing that shipping, the Roman state also supports a bunch of merchants, huge number of merchants, who do a lot of other shipping lines apart from the Carthage to Rome route. And that generates a lot of trade and economic activity in the Western Mediterranean. Um, and, and for that reason, increasingly, the Roman economy is viewed as a market economy, as very, very heavily developed, especially once you get this principate where the entirety of the Western Mediterranean is fully integrated into the Roman state, where all of this trade is being constantly fueled by this subsidy. The subsidy generates a lot of ac economic activity in the Western Mediterranean, and then it also, by providing cheap grain to people who have come to Rome, Rome is the place where people come when they're desperate in, in the Roman state. Um, Rome is the place where if you, if you don't have any land, if you don't have any work, that's where you tend to gather. And by making sure that the people who are in Rome are fed, you prevent those people from getting behind various uh, rebel, rebel groups. Uh, and also by concentrating them in Rome, an area that's directly under the control of the emperor, you aren't putting them somewhere where they might be able to get behind some other general who might cause trouble. Uh, that's, that's something that helps quite a bit. And you also will have a practice where emperors will tend to, to give stuff away a lot. There will be uh, games, there will be uh, sometimes breaks on, on rent. Emperors who are trying to increase their popularity to prevent some kind of rebellion will act generously and give these big gifts. And this is where Seneca comes in, because Seneca does a wonderful job of discussing this, this favor giving as a practice which is essential to maintaining the Roman Empire. And this favor giving kind of mirrors the reciprocal relationship that Cicero talks about between the citizens and the Republic, in which uh, but, but in Cicero's account, it's very institutional. In Cicero's account, you are following Roman law and you are bound by Roman law, but you are also protected by Roman law. And it's all being done very overtly through Roman law. With Seneca, this exchange of favors is a little bit more informal and it's more about uh, creating these kind of ethical entanglements where you freely give something to someone and that makes them grateful to you. That doesn't mean that they're going to give you anything right away. That doesn't mean that there's going to be any immediate repayment and certainly not any kind of repayment that's codified by law, right? So while the Romans do have a market economy and they do have all of this uh, commercial activity, there's also this, this economy of favors that occurs alongside it where people make these generous gestures and in return you have gratitude. And if the time or circumstance arises in which you need to show that gratitude by doing something, you'll do it. 
But there's no guarantee that that time or circumstance will arise soon or even ever. So the generous acts, the favors are performed uh, in a kind of open-handed way. And they do obligate, but they're not done in a way which feels immediately obligating, apart from the immediate obligation to feel and express gratitude. And this becomes a very effective way of binding people to each other and binding citizens to each other. And the Roman state creates a circumstance in which you feel you can be generous like this and you can give favors like this without being taken advantage of. And the Roman law is a way of securing you against being taken advantage of. So it creates a backdrop in which this mutual exchange of favors and gifts can occur without immediate expectations of repayment. And I find that that very interesting, how central that is for Seneca to the empire. Mm. Yeah, there is this uh, slight pivot from uh, Cicero's concept of reciprocity to Seneca's For Cicero, uh, as the title of his book on duties suggests, reciprocity is um, about your responsibilities you have uh, to the state, to other citizens of the state. Whereas for Seneca, um, his book on favours, as the title suggests, is about reciprocity that is freely given without expectation of uh, reciprocation. Of course, it is something that Seneca thinks would be a good thing for people to return favours, and he recommends that. But he recognises that in order for this to be a virtuous process, people have to choose to give favours without hope of reward. And there's also this sense in which For Seneca, reciprocity is something you uh, give while you are paying attention to the interests of the people who you're giving favours to. It is this universal process where ideally everyone will be giving favours to each other and thereby living virtuously and harmoniously with one another. And Cicero does have that in his thought, but it's also a more uh, formalised and also perhaps more restricted reciprocity. He says uh, that now were there a comparison or competition as to who ought most to receive our dutiful services, our country and our parents would be foremost, for we are obliged to them for the greatest kindnesses. Next would be our children and our whole household, which looks to us alone and can have no other refuge than our relations. Etc. Etc. And one ought, when bestowing all these dutiful services, to look at what each person most greatly needs and what each or uh, would or would not be able to secure without our help. And though Seneca does acknowledge that it is the family and the and the state 
which uh, are also the, the foundations for reciprocity. Uh, because it's not this formalized uh, juridical conception of reciprocity that you have in Cicero, I- instead with Seneca, I think there's at least a sense in which reciprocity is this more generalized universal process that everybody should be giving to everyone else, um, regardless of social position. Uh, Seneca even says that uh, people who are slaves can give favours. It's more obvious the sense in which uh, citizens can give favours, but even slaves for Seneca are capable of giving uh, favours, things that go beyond what they are obligated to do as slaves in their function. So uh, while, of course, it's easy to criticise Seneca for not paying uh, enough attention to problems with institutions, partly because he's a naturalist who thinks that the way in which the natural world and the social world is constructed is generally okay, the problem is individuals and how virtuous they are. Um, At the same time, Seneca does have perhaps this foundation for uh, a a fairly coherent way of legitimating the Principate, which is generalised reciprocity which everyone uh, owes to everyone, but where, when giving a favour, you don't necessarily expect a reward and it's not necessarily within a juridical structure. It's ideally, at least, a universal shared reciprocity. Yeah. One of the things I like about these core Roman legitimation stories is the way that they fit together. It's very interesting how they fit together uh, because Cicero's story of having this legal order that secures some level of reciprocity, where you can be civil, you can treat someone like a citizen because you know that the legal order protects you and will ensure that they treat you in a civil way too. That is a good foundation, but it doesn't prove to be enough to legitimate the Roman state in the long term by itself. Mm. It's not quite enough. And the reason it's not enough is that there are large numbers of people who are classed as citizens who don't get treated very well. Yeah. And aren't given the things they need to feel that they can act fully as citizens. And so when you start to add some of these other features, then you get further. The Roman state, by emphasizing its ability just to bring peace in the, in the Principate period, That, I think, shores up the mechanic quite a bit, in part because the failure to secure a real felt citizenship for the plebeians results in a period of conflict and civil war that's so intense that people are so grateful to have the peace restored. Mm -hmm. So grateful. Uh, And that makes it a lot easier for the Principate to construct a story around peace. And then, of course, because you have peace... That peace is secured both by the legal order, but not just by the legal order, but also by the emperor, by the princeps, and by the princeps' ability, by that charismatic, masterful ability to either be Augustus or to remind you of Augustus, to be like Augustus. Uh, All of that is going to make it possible for you to do those Seneca-style favors because you are secured not just by the legal order, but also by the princeps 
and the Princap's ability to deliver on peace. Mm. And it's against this stability that comes out of the legal order and the skill of the Princaps, which is going to make it possible for people to have these very generous relations with each other. Mm. And of course, for Seneca, the Princaps, because they have the most capacity, is the one who should give the most favors and be the most generous. Mm. And Seneca is giving advice, incidentally, to Nero. Yeah. Because Seneca is is writing during the period of Nero. And Nero doesn't end up uh, sticking with Seneca for very long. After a few years, he gets kind of sick of Seneca. And Nero orders Seneca to kill himself. And Seneca does. And according to the story, the soldiers who are sent to give Seneca the order to kill himself, Nero doesn't go personally, he sends soldiers to order Seneca to kill himself. Uh, These soldiers give Seneca a hard time for taking too long to kill himself. And so they start having him do additional things to kill him faster because they're dissatisfied with the slowness of the methods which Seneca initially pursues. So when you imagine Seneca's death, you have to imagine an old man uh, killing himself but being constantly told he's, he's going about it too slowly and he's wasting time and to hurry up. So in both Seneca's case and Cicero's case, the state which they really loved and encouraged everyone else to love is the thing which eventually does them in. Mm. Neither one ends up getting precisely what they want out of the Roman state. Uh, And yet, that doesn't mean that the Roman state stops. A lot of the time, people think of Nero as, well, surely Nero must have been one of the last emperors. But this is not true. Nero is Mm. the last emperor in the Julio-Claudian dynastic line. Mm. But even the Principate goes on for more than 100 years past that point, even before turning into the dominant. And... Nero becomes proof of concept that when you have someone who is very, very ineffective, you can get rid of them. Uh, And the way the empire gets rid of Nero is by having a one-year-long year year of the four emperors in which four different generals all around the same time set about deposing Nero and in the process have to depose each other and uh, do in a in a sequence that goes uh, first Galba deposes Nero, then Otho deposes Galba, then Vitellius deposes Otho, and then Vespasian deposes Vitellius, um, and Vespasian is then able to establish another another period of stability. Uh, that is just one of the earlier episodes of what will become the pattern in the Principate, in which if somebody comes along who's really really bad, you chuck them out and you get someone else. And in that way, they were able to, to some degree, renew the Roman state for a period of time. Hmm. Uh, It's astounding how long it goes on, given how rickety it often appears. Yeah. It is is astounding. Hmm. Uh, One of the things you mentioned is, is that Seneca is a naturalist. And I think it's a good time to talk a little bit about how the Romans interacted with Greek philosophy and with the Greek schools. 
So the Romans get involved in Greek philosophy when the Greek philosophical schools have been around for a while and have been in antagonistic relations with each other for a while and have a certain level of interaction and interfacing. And the kind of big four in ancient Greece are the Platonists, the Peripatetics, that those are the Aristotelians, the Stoics, and the Epicureans. Uh, we've talked quite a bit about Plato and Aristotle before on the pod. Uh, the Stoics are even more naturalists than the Aristotelians. The Stoics think that uh, are, are materialists who think that the soul has corporeal form. So they are very earthy, and they don't go in for Platonic nonsense. They, they think the forms are, are entirely fictitious. And for the Stoics, the main insight, and Seneca is a Stoic and comes out of that school, their, their main insight is that the universe has to be the way that it is. And if you want the universe to be different from the way that it is, that's unreasonable. You're trying to change the whole universe just because you don't like it? Uh, why should the universe change for you? The Stoics think that there is a singular God and that the universe is uh, benevolent and, and, and good place, but that we make it bad through our unwillingness to understand it and accept it as it is. And our reactions to the universe are the source of our suffering rather than the universe itself. Uh, that's a view that from a Platonic point of view is very unsophisticated. The Platonists are not very impressed by the Stoics for most mm. of their history. Um, however, during the period at which Cicero comes on the scene, the Platonic Academy is going through a weird set of changes. Early in the history, the very, very early old Platonists I think, occupy a space kind of between skepticism and dogmatism in which they take the truth to be this form that you can learn a bit about, but which you can't have in full or in total. That's the way I tend to teach Plato as this kind of translucentist who sees the truth uh, as something that exists about which we might learn a bit here or there, but never something we can have all of, never something that we can just learn once and then simply communicate to other people through a dogma. Relatively early on in the history of Platonism, the Platonic Academy moves in a more thoroughgoingly skeptical direction in which it takes Plato to be basically saying that you can't know the truth. Uh, that skepticism makes Platonism not very appetizing to the Romans when the Romans take over Greece. The Romans are very pragmatic-minded. They want stuff that they can use for the benefit of the Roman state because the Romans think very much in terms of uh, glorifying themselves through glorifying the state. Uh, and so the Romans are looking for something more pragmatic and practical. And the Aristotelians and the Stoics in particular, especially the Stoics, in offering earthy practical advice are very, very compelling to a lot of Romans, and especially to a lot of Roman aristocrats. And there's a turn in the Platonic school at this time in which the Platonic school tries to moderate that its skepticism a bit. But instead of returning to 
some kind of platonic epistemology, they still take the epistemology advocated by Plato to, to not be able to generate actual knowledge. So they're still buying skepticism about any kind of end result. The main difference is that where the, uh, the skeptics would say that if there isn't a way of getting knowledge through Platonism, then there's no way of getting knowledge at all. These middle Platonists will instead say that while you can't know the true nature of anything, while you can't know uh, the, the form of anything, you can still know things about the natural representation. And their methods for learning about natural representation will be largely things that they've picked up off of the Aristotelians and the Stoics. So Cicero actually has a platonic background, despite the fact that Cicero uses a lot of natural law language mm. and makes a lot of references to naturalism. He comes out of the Platonic Academy, but he comes out of the Academy during a particularly strange period in which the Academy has strayed pretty far from any kind of Platonic rationalist epistemology and has grabbed a lot of stuff from Aristotelianism and from Stoicism. Uh, now, one of the other things that will get picked up by the Academy during this period is Neopythagoreanism, the Pythagorean tradition. And the impact of the Pythagoreans on Platonism will be to drag them in the Neoplatonist direction that we associate with Plotinus. Uh, that comes later in Roman history, after Cicero and Seneca, during the later empire. And these Neoplatonists return to much greater hostility to, toward the material and natural world, uh, much greater interest in getting outside the physical, getting outside the natural. And I would say they probably move in a direction that from the point of view of original Plato is a little bit dogmatist insofar as they have a, they're more confident, I think, than Plato himself was about their capacity to know the truth. More confident. So kind of the opposite revision uh, of the one which the skeptics originally make, where the skeptics go, uh, under Platonism, you can't learn anything at all, and no one else can teach you anything at all of any value, so you can't know things. Uh, the Neoplatonists will say, now, Platonism can get you quite a bit. Uh, through Platonism, the, the Neoplatonists will argue, you can return to the one from which we emanate, a kind of enlightenment uh, that you can get through philosophy. That's a, a kind of full realization of the truth. And I don't think that you'll find in the original Plato that kind of full realization of the truth. But of course, each of these schools of Platonists position themselves as having recovered or revived or the real authentic Platonism of Plato. So the skeptics will, will tell you they have the real Platonism of Plato. The middle Platonists will tell you they have the real Platonism of Plato. And these Neoplatonists will tell you they have the real Platonism of Plato. Uh, but I think for our purposes in discussing these Romans, Seneca and Cicero, the main thing to point out here is that this is a period in which the Platonists get rather earthy compared to any of the other phases of Platonic thought. And during these periods, it's possible for this naturalism to make its way into Platonism. So even though Cicero is affiliated with Platonism, there's a lot of things that we don't associate with Platonism going on in his thought. Mm. And of course, Seneca, as a Stoic, also subscribes to 
natural law theory. The Stoics are really the starting point for natural law theory. Aristotle himself doesn't use that language. The Aristotelians, the Peripatetics, don't use a lot of that language. But generally in the Roman canon, if Stoicism is coming in, it's often coming in alongside Aristotelianism and being mixed together to a degree. And in Cicero's hands, you definitely see Aristotle and the Stoics mixed together to a degree. One of the ways in which you can really distinguish Stoicism from Aristotelianism is that Aristotelianism is always emphasizing golden means, balances between two different mistakes, whereas Stoicism will frame uh, things in a much more one directional way. You need to use reason to discipline your passions, your emotions, your desires, these things that are causing you to uh, not be okay with things as they are. Uh, you, these reactions that you're having need to be, need to be gotten in, into line. Aristotle is not as one-directional as this. The relationship in Aristotelianism between reason and the passions is more reciprocal than it is under Stoicism. Um, mm. Now, I, I, want, I think it's a good time to talk a little bit about, and I know this is a digression from talking about the Romans, but the recent weird interest in Stoicism in contemporary online discussions. There's been a lot of stoicism lately on the internet. Um, and I find it kind of curious. For one, it, it seems to be very popular with young men, uh, in part because stoicism has a kind of stereotypically masculine emphasis on reason negating the passions and, and, uh, I think, I think that has a bit of a masculine appeal. But I also think there's an element of uh, liberal interpretation going on in the contemporary uses of Stoicism because of mm. this emphasis on controlling yourself, mm. controlling your reaction, controlling the way you are perceiving and interacting with the world, naturalizing the world, saying that the world is, has to be the way that it is and expecting the world to be different is, is unreasonable. And then demanding that you comport yourself to the world. You make your peace with it. Um, there's something very contemporary liberal about that kind of ethical demand. There's something that seems to resonate with contemporary liberalism there. Uh, but I think it's important to point out that in its original Greco-Roman form, all of these schools of thought are much more committed to this embedded citizen and republic citizen and polis citizen and, and kiwitas relationship. Mm. Even for a Stoic, if it's your job to reconcile yourself to, to the universe, it's also your job to reconcile yourself to a social role. It's mm. also your job to reconcile yourself to a set of political duties. Yeah, It's not just um, nobody should try to change the world and, and just make the best of it. It's also about reconciling yourself to social arrangements and to um, these thick responsibilities that mm. are not just about uh, the individual. So there is something there that 
that I think is still antagonistic with contemporary liberalism, even though you see a lot of people reacting to contemporary li- liberalism with uh, a bit of stoicism, and some some are more faithful to it than others. Uh, but it, it's a kind of interesting attempt to modernize and and use in a contemporary context something very old. I think we've also seen a lot of that with the mindfulness movement, which has tried to use elements of Buddhism to get people to feel more, uh, to get people to work on themselves. Mm. There's a lot of discussion of working on yourself. And one of the things that we kind of talked about in reference to both Cicero and Seneca is that these Roman authors in the case of Seneca, he doesn't really emphasize institutions. Cicero does emphasize institutions, but in both cases, the problem is a virtue problem where certain people or certain classes of people are not being virtuous enough. Mm-hmm. And because they're not being virtuous enough, uh, that's corroding the institution. And in neither case do you look for an institutional solution to the virtue production problem. Neither Cicero nor Seneca really does that. And I think that's something that separates those two from Plato and from Aristotle. Plato and Aristotle very much entertained lots of different legal frameworks, lots of different political frameworks, thought about what kinds of city-states are better or worse than others. You don't get that very much from the Roman authors, in part because the Roman state is not something that can be easily changed. Mm. Advocating for changing the Roman state, especially under the Principate, Uh, is not going to end well for you. Mm. And in the case of Cicero and a lot of the Republican authors, the emphasis is always on trying to restore things to the way that they used to be, trying to get back to the kind of Roman virtue that we used to have that we've now lost. And there isn't a lot of imagination about new kinds of institutions. The ancient Roman institutions are idealized and the problems that you see in the contemporary period, are never attributed to those institutions, which are treated as sacrosanct, but instead are attributed to our failure to live up to them. And it's kind of similar to how a lot of Americans relate to the U.S. Constitution, where our problems are never attributed to the Constitution, but always attributed to our failure to live up to uh, the Constitution and Mm. its promise or its potential. Mm. Always see that in, in the American discourse. And I think a lot of that comes from the uh, the fact that for for the Romans and also I think to some degree for contemporary Americans, our unity, our state is constituted by the legal order. The legal order is the thing that we're unified around more than anything else. Mm. And if you're unified principally around a legal order, If you try to make major revisions to the legal order, that very much risks completely breaking the whole state in a way that having a little bit of infighting between the Democrats or the Republicans or having a little bit of infighting between different Roman generals or different Senate factions or different social orders doesn't do. If everybody is still committed to the Republic and what everyone is trying to do is to revive the Republic as they understand it. The divisions are still buttressed by some level of unity around Republican institutions. And so even those generals who will reconfigure those institutions to a significant degree will do it under the aegis of restoring the Republic, 
of protecting the republic, of reforming the republic so that it can continue to work. And a lot of the time now, in contemporary context, a lot of people, and not even contemporary, go back to the modern period, the 18th and 19th centuries. A lot of writers looking back on the Romans regard the Principate as straightforwardly a bunch of of baloney. That, oh yeah, they said that they were saving the Republic, but of course they weren't. A lot of reflexive taking the side of Cicero. Mm. Uh, But to a Roman who is living in that period, what the Republic has delivered is a world where there are a lot of people who have Roman citizenship but don't have any land, have been pressed into military service. And whenever it looks like they're getting close to getting some land, their general gets into a political entanglement which threatens that possibility. They fight for years. Many of them die. The few that survive, they then try to take the land that they've earned from them. And they rationalize all of this on the basis of it's what, it's what the Republican legal order demands. It's what the Republican legal order has mandated. And it's very hard to maintain a commitment to a set of political institutions when those institutions are gradually taking from you the things that you need to really think of yourself as a full Roman citizen. Mm. When Roman citizenship becomes nominal but not real, it's hard to inspire continued loyalty. Mm. And in the Principate, you don't get nearly the same level of disturbance in part because the Principate is more able to make the ordinary Roman citizen feel like they're part of a common project Mm. than they were able to feel under the late Republic. Uh, And in some sense, that does maintain a lot of the the same core concepts. A lot of the same stories that are being told in the late Republic are still being told in the Principate. And the major revision is that you have this princeps to act as, as a guarantor or an arbitrator between the patricians and the plebeians. Because during the late Republic, because there's no arbitrator, the patricians are able to use their wealth to influence those political institutions which belong to the plebeians and gradually accumulate more and more and more. Mm. And so I, I, I often feel, and I may be in the minority among people who are interested in the Romans on this, on this point, that the Principate gets undersold. Uh, the Principate as a political solution, as a political solution, leaving aside whether you like it ethically, it works for a long time. And it works pretty well. It delivers a level of stability in a part of the world that had not seen stability uh, for a very long period of time. And of course, it doesn't get you out of a lot of the fundamental problems of the ancient world in the existence of slavery, in there being severe, severe, sharp class conflict uh, and class difference. Uh, It doesn't get you out of those fundamental and essential problems, but it did get a lot of people out of the problem of being constantly killed in endemic war Mm. for a significant period of time. Uh, And it was still based on this political unity. And the political unity shifts a little bit. It's not just about the Roman legal order, but also a consensus on the identity of the princeps. But the princeps is thoroughly embedded in the Roman legal order because the princeps receives a bunch of different offices that were previously uh, different people. The 
first citizen is constructed legally through the amalgamating of different legal powers together into a singular office. Uh, the censor, the pontifex maximus, the tribunate power, a uh, number of different powers under the republic get stitched together to make the print caps. And a lot of people look at all of those powers together and go, well, is that really different from a king? It is in the way that the Romans themselves related to it. And that matters, regardless of whether we today think it matters, because that was the difference between those Roman citizens feeling part of a republic and feeling subjects of a king. Hmm. And democracy and republics mean different things to different people. That Those terms come to mean different things in different contexts. Mm. And when we project our particular notion of what a republic or what a democracy is uh, onto the past, we can sometimes miss the ways that people in the past understood themselves, understood their worlds. And there's something lost in that, in subjecting ancient republics and ancient democracies to contemporary normative standards for what those polities should be. What if the Gracchi had succeeded in the 130s BCE? What if the Gracchi had succeeded? Well, some listeners who might not be aware, the Gracchi tried to do a set of land reforms using the power of the tribune uh, to veto legislation uh, on behalf of the plebeians. They tried to do suites of land reforms, and they were killed by, uh, by the senators in a similar way to the way that Julius Caesar was killed. And the accounts of the death of the Gracchi are quite, quite narratively well-written. Mm. The accounts that we have in which uh, I think I, one of the Gracchi, I think it's Tiberius, uh, curses the Roman people uh, after he you know, is beseeching all of them for help and none of them will help because they know that if they help, they too will be killed. Mm. And so he's you know, trying to escape from the, the, uh, the Senate's thugs and l- trying to get a horse, trying to get help, beseeching people to help, and none of them will help. They, they all are rooting for him. They all hope that he gets away, but none of them will help him. Yeah. Because their belief in their capacity to resist the patricians is not there. Yeah. So if any of them had helped, perhaps he could have gotten away, but they didn't believe that they could do it. And the Gracchi were never able to make the ordinary plebeian believe that they could do it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a big part of why those peaceful political reforms didn't work. There was not a social base, a social power base for the Gracchi that was heavily organized in a way that you could marshal it all together. The Gracchi could construct through their orations uh, mobs that would last for a little while, that would ride a wave of energy, intimidating mobs, but those mobs were not institutionally embedded in anything. The Gracchi didn't have the ability to pay them. Mm. It's not like they were in a trade union. It's not like they were tied by some kind of uh, employment or, or some kind of something, something to ground it, something to make it stable. They didn't have any of that. 
And ultimately, what is able to topple the Roman Republic is armies, armies where uh, the Marian reforms push these poor people into a heavily organized hierarchical top-down military under a general who can lead them as an actual physical army against the Senate. Mm. That's what ends up working in Rome. And I think, you know, what if the Gracchi had succeeded? For the Gracchi to have succeeded, the Senate would have had to have been willing to have the Republican institutions produce the outcome that the Gracchi that the Gracchi were looking for. Mm. And the Senate was never willing to let those institutions do that. They would murder somebody and break the law before they would let the legal institutions do that. Yes. Yeah. And they would break the law saying, we're killing someone who is a would-be king. That is always the justification for the aristocrats. They always say, the patricians always say, this person was trying to be a king. This person was trying to destroy the Republic. And that's why we had to kill them. Mm. That's always their defense. But I, I can't imagine a scenario in which, in which those senators would have gone along with those reforms willingly. What if the civic socialization had worked and the, the masses had in some way been organized to physically challenge the senatorial oligarchy? Well, that's an interesting question. How would, how would you organize them? I, I think that the way to organize them that was most readily available to people at the time put them in the army. Mm. Marius does that. Yes. And that is the thing that ends up working. What would the alternative mode of organization be? A lot of them were, were jobless, yeah. landless. They weren't very embedded in much of anything. Yeah. Uh, they had, they were, some of them were in the collegia and the gangs, but if you were in the gangs, then you were being taken care of through crime. Mm. So, it's hard to come up with something that would have provided that structure because the Romans who do the work of overthrowing the Republic are not Romans who have stable wage labor jobs and they're not Romans who have land. Yeah. They're Romans who only have the army, who only have their comrades in the army and the general who leads them. They have nothing else. And that's what makes them so loyal. Yeah. And so willing to turn on the Senate because the Senate has not given them anything else of value mm. that the Senate could threaten to take from them mm. or that the Senate could use to cause them to feel like the Senate cares mm. about them. And the thing about an, an emperor, the thing about a first citizen, a princeps, is that the first citizen in relying on a consensus of everybody has to and does make some show of being committed to the ordinary Roman in a way that the senators never do. SPQR, Senatus Populusque Roman, Romana, the Senate and people of Rome, the people and Senate under the Republic are viewed as two different things in an antagonistic relationship. Mm. And they're both part of the Republic, but the Republic is not embodied by anything. And the thing that the Principate does is it gives the Republic a physical embodiment in the first citizen. Yes. And the first citizen cares about you. Of course, the senators don't, but it doesn't matter because the first citizen does. Mm, yeah, as Hobbes put it in the Viathan, it is the unity of the representer, not the unity of the represented, that makes the person, the person of the state, one. 
And uh, but if we apply that Hobbesian logic back in time to the the, the Roman Empire, then the Principate does that. It 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 you know the person of the state is represented in one person, whereas uh, beforehand it was uh, more uh, dispersed and yeah, therefore perhaps less effective at generating. Concordia generating legitimacy. Yeah, generating that consensus at Concordia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in terms of comparing the Roman Principate to Hobbes, uh, one of the, oftentimes Hobbes is used to demarcate the beginning of modern states. Yes. As distinct and separate from ancient states, which are viewed as dynastic and more about personal loyalty. Yes. Uh, I, I've always been a little bit suspicious of that sharp distinction between Hobbes and stuff that comes before Hobbes. Yeah, I think I that you can yeah. draw it between Hobbes and a lot of medieval political thought. Hobbes sure. is very clearly a break with medieval arguments that frame the king as legitimate because the king uh, has a divine right or because uh, of a set of vassalage feudal Patronage ties. Uh, But in emphasizing the ability of the monarch to protect you, Hobbes' argument is not that different from a principate argument for for a a princaps. I think where there is divergence is the extent to which, firstly, Hobbes grounds this on a kind of natural law theory. Yeah. And you don't get that kind of ubiquity of natural law in the ancient world. So if you're going to make this kind of argument, it's a more pragmatic argument, not something with a natural law foundation. Yeah. Um, Because you have too many different kinds of people with too many different beliefs about what the universe is like Mm. for something like that to try to position itself as the hegemonic basis. And then secondly, you don't get the language of representation. No. Yeah. <laughs> in Rome. Yeah. They don't use the language of representation. Uh, I think that Hobbes, in using the language of representation, was not trying to produce the conception of representation which eventually develops right. after Hobbes. I think he was trying to get at something that was more similar to the kind of relation which existed in ancient Rome. Yeah, yeah. But because he uses that word representation— that opens up possibilities after Hobbes for that word to be taken in a much thicker way in which the population can make all kinds of demands on the sovereign. Um, In the Roman world, the population does not make demands on the sovereign Mm. uh, because the population cannot expect to be represented by the sovereign in some kind of thick sense. And neither is Hobbes's ideal population. And neither is Hobbes's ideal, right? I think Hobbes's notion of representation is much closer to consensus at Concordia. Yeah, it is. But Hobbes does not use the language of consensus at Concordia. Yeah, yeah. if only he did. (laughs) He uses, he uses the, the, uh, there's agreement on the language of of securing peace, securing uh, peace. Peace is emphasized by both. I think that they're trying to talk about something quite similar, but because they use different terms, they the people who 
attach themselves to Hobbes's terms end up pulling in a quite different direction. And so modern political thought ends up pulling very far away from this. Um, the, the other point I think is worth making uh, about Hobbes and, and what follows Hobbes versus the Romans uh, is that in the case of Hobbes, Hobbes is not able to satisfy people with his theory. I think in part because the language of representation opens itself up to more demanding interpretations of what the sovereign owes the subjects, but also because Hobbes is writing at a time after Christian hegemony, where there is an expectation that the state will have some kind of relationship to God or to the good. And so the expectation simply that the state will preserve your life and protect you and maintain the peace that isn't sufficiently convincing to people living during Hobbes's period because of their experience of states which embed themselves in some kind of universalistic notion of the good. Uh, those stories about divine right of kings have an impact on future political theory mm. by making people who don't believe in divine right of kings nonetheless want the state to associate itself with the good or with some kind of something that, if not divine, has gives you the same kinds of feelings that a divine association would give you. And so a lot of post-Abesian political theory wants the state to stand up for values, things like liberty, equality. And that makes it much harder for something like Hobbes's theory to be persuasive because it doesn't promise enough. Mm. And I, I think that gets even more uh, demanding once industrialization kicks in and we start getting a rapid uh, technological change and demands for more living standard for higher living standards and for the state to secure our living standard. These demands that kick in coming out of industrialization, uh, these progress narrative demands, all of that makes it harder for Hobbes's promise of, of peace and survival to be sufficiently compelling. In the Roman case, where there isn't rapid technological change, where there isn't um, any history of the state being heavily embedded in some kind of theology that's comforting, especially in Western Europe at that time, um, in that kind of context, being able to deliver on peace is quite impressive. Mm. Peace in, in the ancient world is an impressive thing to manage to do, especially over a space that big. I think there was more appreciation for peace, provided that it comes along with the things you need to survive, like food, mm. some, some means of being able to, to get food. And the thing that the Republic got wrong uh, is that it wasn't able to secure its poorer citizens against the precarity of landlessness. Mm. The Principate finds ways to do that. It doesn't create equality. It doesn't create uh, a classless society, but it finds ways to secure enough people enough of the time against the precarity of landlessness. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily by giving them land, but by coming up with ways to meet their immediate needs yeah. and make them feel like they're still part of the state and that the state is still theirs in some sense. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, one of the things that's changed is the expectations for states. 
and also because now you have to legitimate the state not just to say plebeians to people who used to have land but don't have it anymore, uh, but to everybody. Now we have to meet people's needs that in the Roman context, because they would have been slaves, uh, were not even subject to efforts to legitimate the state. There's a large population in the Roman period that are simply held in chains and no one tries to legitimate the state to them. Mm. Um, you know, I think if, if you only had to legitimate the state to local elites, mm. if the European Union only had to legitimate itself to local elites in Paris and London and Berlin and Rome, uh, and it didn't have to win broad plebiscites of ordinary people, it would probably be a lot easier for something like the European Union to politically survive. Yeah. It's the need to legitimate the state to a larger set of people to get uh, continued and renewing electoral support in the contemporary world that makes it a lot harder for those stories about meeting basic needs. Uh, very, very basic needs, survival needs uh, to win the day. Mm. Higher expectations and, and more people that we're expected to talk to. Uh, recently, I think that one of the problems we've been having is that states have tried to talk to fewer people. Mm. And democracy doesn't let you get away with that. Uh, at least not in full, only to a point. To jump back to one other point that perhaps is worth delving slightly deeper into, that though post-Aquinas uh, naturalism became, and particularly natural law theory, became a lot more uh, dominant. And even today, naturalism is something people uh, often frame as the only alternative um, as we mentioned in the previous podcast episode, um, to nihilism. Uh, and people often frame this as a, a contest between moral theories which say that there really is no moral value, there's nothing worth pursuing, anything goes, and moral theories which say, well, there are limits to what people can do, but only as... Uh, prescribed by nature. So utilitarians are naturalists in this way because they base their moral theory on what produces pleasure and pain, stuff that is in nature, and they thus make the step from is to ought. And though this is something that is more prevalent in a kind of the post-Thomistic, post-Aquinas uh, world, it does have roots in uh, Aristotelian naturalism, um, when Aristotle tried to deny uh, the form of the good, to try to think about the human good on eudaimonia, on the good life as it applies to humans living in states, uh, rather than Plato's idea of the, the state and individuals' lives being geared towards some kind of uh, contemplation progressing in a dialectic towards the form of the good. Uh, and in 
you also see naturalism fleshed out a bit more in Cicero. And though Seneca does get away from Cicero in some respects, he does perhaps thin the legitimation story you see in Cicero. Cicero has this whole baggage, this whole fleshed out natural uh, law theory, nature run by a rational uh, providence. And he also has this elements from, as you're talking about Benjamin, from from Middle Platonism and all these other philosophical intuitions um, and institutional prescriptions, Seneca's legitimation story for the state is uh, thinner, is not as uh, fleshed out, doesn't place too many demands on the state, doesn't demand a politeia, a mixed constitution, just places emphasis on people showing restraint on controlling their emotions and on giving uh, favours in the reciprocal way. Nevertheless, as a Stoic, he is still a naturalist. And Seneca, in this one interesting passage from On Anger, says, uh, I will also bring in some evidence from Plato. Uh, what harm is there in using other people's ideas on points where they coincide with ours? A good man, um, Plato says, does no damage. Uh, punishment, and this is Seneca, uh, does do damage. Therefore, punishment does not go with being a good man, nor for that reason does anger, since punishment does go with anger. If a good man does not delight in punishment, neither will he delight in that affection which sees punishment as a pleasure. Therefore, anger is not natural. And Seneca's basically said, uh, anger's not a good thing, therefore it's not natural, which is a, a, you know, something that looks a bit worryingly in danger in falling into an ought-is trap where you say something ought to be the case, therefore it is the case. Just because anger isn't great doesn't mean it is uh, not natural. But this is something that Seneca wants to say. He wants to root morality in nature. And I guess, you know, though moderns make different mistakes from the ancients and there are big differences between modern and ancient legitimation stories. Uh, there are also uh, some, um, if not uh, common things that moderns and ancients get right, there are things that both moderns and a lot of ancients get wrong, one of which is jumping from ought to is, jumping from what's natural to what's moral in a very uh, easy way that... Uh, Though people often recognise this as wrong, Hume says that jumping from is's to oughts, um, from oughts to is's, is not a valid logical move. And lots of other moderns um, recognise this as a problem. <laughs> Even people who do recognise it as a problem often just go on to commit it. Hume does not have a Platonist morality. He has a you know, morality of sympathy, a rather emotivist morality, so in a way a naturalist one. And yeah, so maybe though we do differ a lot from the ancients, ancient institutions, modern institutions are different, we do sometimes make similar uh, mistakes on occasion when it comes to uh, moral, uh, moral theory. Yeah, yeah. As, uh, as I was listening to that, I thought about how our own situation mirrors that situation uh, where 
you have skepticism from the Platonic Academy on the one hand, and the kind of dogmatic naturalism of the Stoics mm. uh, on the other hand. Kind of similar to the contemporary situation where you have a lot of nihilism and skepticism on the one hand, and a lot of technocratic naturalism coming from scientists and economists on the other hand. Mm. These periods where you get this sharp antagonism between people who are very, very skeptical and people who are very, very naturalist. Uh, and it, it hollows out the field a little bit yeah. when you're stuck between deriving all of your oughts from what exists and not being able to substantiate oughts at all. Yeah. It makes it very hard to articulate other visions for the way things could be or should be. Yeah. Though there is still hope in ethical theory. You do have people like Derek Parfit who isn't a Platonist, but uh, like Plato, sees the good, sees morality as first. So before we can legitimately talk about is's and natural claims, what matters for both Parfit and Plato is, first of all, uh, getting some kind of idea of the good, um, what Plato calls the forms and the form of the good and what uh, Parfit calls irreducibly normative truth. So there are some people who escape this dichotomy between scepticism and uh, naturalism, uh, but at all times they often do tend to be in the minority, which does, um, at least on some level, lend support to Plato's claim that uh, there is a lot of diversity in ways in which people think. And it may be that uh, for a variety of reasons, social and perhaps natural, uh, it's quite difficult for a lot of people to think about morality in a non-naturalist or non-sceptical way. Naturalism and scepticism are uh, perhaps easier <laughs> to uh, gravitate to in a troubled and conflicted age than Platonism or uh, Parfitianism. Those are more abstract theories, Platonism and Parfit's ideas. It is more easier to get your head around scepticism that just rejects the problem altogether or rejects morality. And it's also easier to get your head about naturalism. It just says, oh yeah, morality and nature, same thing. <laughs> um, but, you know, <laughs> it's... Of course, I, ideally, people would be able to escape from this dichotomy, but in a world in which people have so little time to do contemplation, to do philosophy, because of the demands of the market, because of the demands of wage labour, in the same way that in the ancient world, um, most people didn't have um, aristocratic freedom. It's always been difficult for most people, and perhaps today for all people, to really think about these problems in a way that could, uh, yeah, overcome troubling dichotomies. And in the period we're talking about, even aristocrats like Cicero and Seneca uh, <laughs> seem to have some issue <laughs> yeah. with, with that dichotomy. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
It seemed, uh, yeah. Well, it sounds, Edmund, like you've come to another one of your golden means. Hmm. <laughs> I, I think if people are keeping score at home, probably about once an episode, Edmund comes up with a new golden mean. Well, you named it this episode, Benjamin. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I did. But yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's a... A neat place to to put that that yeah. discussion, yeah. And this is a theme that we've we've gotten onto a couple of times now before uh, about the ways in which naturalism is dissatisfying, the ways in which skepticism is dissatisfying. And one of the great benefits for the Roman state was that because the Roman state was not thoroughly embedded in one particular theology, because it was home to a lot of different religious and philosophical traditions. Its political theory didn't have to be grounded on some kind of natural law theory. Mm. It didn't have to be grounded on uh, on on these things. Yeah. And so, while there are theorists who would find in their own naturalist theories justifications for the Roman state, there were so many different ways of justifying the Roman state. So many different ways, mm. and the Roman state allowed everybody to come up with the ways that suited them best. Mm. And they would often trade on or interface with some of those core Roman concepts, that that reciprocity, which you find in both Seneca and Cicero, that emphasis on citizens having both legal protections and legal obligations. Um, Mm. These things come up again and again in lots of different Roman era political thought the flexibility of the Roman state was its ability and willingness to use whatever anyone was in the mood to use to legitimate the Roman state. And that even meant in the Eastern provinces deifying emperors where necessary. Uh, the Romans would go with whatever works. Hmm. And that's what makes it difficult sometimes to pin them down. A lot of people want to pin them down as Stoics, want to pin them down with Cicero. But the Romans will ultimately be quite flexible yeah. and they'll move yeah. when they see that something isn't working. And the people who don't move because they get stuck in one particular paradigm, if the Roman state moves on and tries to go do something else, uh, they will either have to come along with the Roman state or they won't make it. And both Cicero and Seneca didn't make it. Mm. So many golden ends. <laughs> Yeah. The states that tend to last the longest, I think, in history are the states that are most adaptable in their ability to tell compelling legitimation stories. And that adaptability often manifests as a willingness to tell lots of different stories at the same time to different people. Mm. Yeah. To legitimate the state and to offer justifications for the state that are different, that meet different people's needs, predispositions, predilections. Mm to not get overly tied down into one thing. Yeah. And one of the weaknesses of the medieval, you know, medieval political thought by comparison is that because it gets embedded with the Catholic Church and with this Catholic consensus, with this theological consensus. Yeah. The breakdown of the religious agreement becomes the breakdown of the political unity. Yeah. And the Roman state because it didn't pitch itself on a theological consensus, but only on a political consensus around 
the Roman law and around the print caps. Mm. Because it limited its consensus in that way and thinned it in that way, was much more adaptable. Yeah. And it was when you got overly committed, when we got overly committed to particular theologies or to particular people when the Roman Empire became the dominant and became uh, concentrated more of its power and authority in a smaller number of hands, making usurpation less common and making it more reliant on particular individuals. Um, loss of adaptability sets in. And perhaps those are two different strategies. That One strategy, the kind of Roman strategy, is appeal to the whole polis, um, have legitimation stories that kind of get everyone on board, holistic appeal, um, but doing that through institutional imagination, through or at least through uh, legitimation imagination, always being able to imagine different legitimation stories and being willing as the princeps to use them as they please, as is necessary. Um, So to appeal to everyone, the princeps has to have the imagination necessary to uh, use different stories when necessary and throw away old ones when they stop being useful. But the other strategy is the medieval strategy, which focuses on socialization, providing a base consensus around a thick moral code. And so if you socialize everyone in such a way as they can endorse a set of uh, you know, moral practices, that can provide the basis. But there is, you know, though that I think is, in some senses, the more tempting of the two strategies, if you're going to unify everyone, uh, it, it's easier if everyone's on board with one set ideology. You don't have to imagine new things. You don't have to constantly evolve that way. But the risk is that when that strategy collapses and when uh, the unity of Christendom did collapse um, with the, uh, you know, with the Protestant, Reformation. yeah, with the Reformation, um, that then. Uh, leads to uh, quite a lot of problems that uh, can't be easily undone. Yes, you then end up in a legitimation desert where everything that you know how to use doesn't work anymore and you haven't come up with anything new. And That period of early modernity is a period of experimentation where people are trying to come up with new justifications for states because what they had relied on for years and years and years had broken down. And what they had relied on shaped their imagination, shaped the kinds of things that they came up with Mm. in the 1600s and 1700s and 1800s. Uh, Yeah, yeah, there there was a lack of flexibility. Mm. A lack of flexibility. Mm. But I guess, yeah. And and that's, I, I think, another key thing is states don't have to perform exceptionally well if they are very good at telling stories and telling different stories and stories that change. Yeah. And it can be tempting to find a kind of one-size-fits-all strategy and then try to make that strategy continue to fit everybody yeah. continuously. Yeah. Uh, but if that's a very thick consensus mm. and it requires a lot of agreement on a lot of controversial things where any small disagreement, you know, even on whether the what you're passing out at church counts as the actual blood of Christ or doesn't, uh, 
can potentially threaten the consensus. If you need people to agree on even little things like that, it's a pretty fragile thing long term. Yeah. Yeah. Tempting, but fragile as a legitimation strategy. Yeah. Yes, because states, while they have some ability to socialize people to come to particular religious beliefs or cultural beliefs, the state's ability to socialize its subjects is not so great as to enable the state to effortlessly reproduce a consensus around a lot and a huge number of different beliefs. Um, That thinner political framework can then be filled out by whatever it is that you are coming to the political framework with. and. That enables everybody to come and uh, there's, there's certain political content that's shared, but the way you relate to it spiritually uh, in ancient Rome can vary greatly. Um, and that, that gave them a lot more flexibility than, than the medievals. And that brings us back to one of the older golden means of previous episodes gone by of a balance between thick and thin legitimation stories being ideal rather than being all thin or all thick. Yes. Well, and of course that danger that once you start to thicken, you just keep thickening and you end up with something that's very difficult to maintain and very fragile. Once, once you start getting thicker, it's hard to stop. And perhaps the only way you could maintain that in the long term would be a fundamental change to the conditions of politics to how humans think (laughs) but that (laughs) i mean that is something that might not be impossible uh, within humanity's future with the technological development that capitalism has engendered Um, but (laughs) the kind of deep changes that you would need to make to the conditions of politics to human nature to make a super thick uh, legitimation story effective, uh, those kind of possibilities still seem to be uh, very much uh, at the horizon or beyond the horizon. They don't seem to be something that's imminently possible for states. The balance, the golden mean, is still something that states need to pay attention to. Okay, well, this was our very long and and very wonderful uh, Roman thought discussion. Always fun to talk about the Romans, their uh, favorite of mine, and always fun to talk to Edmund. It's it's always a joy talking to you, Benjamin. Uh, And, uh, of course, we do have a Patreon now at uh, patreon.com slash political theory 101. No underscores, all lowercase, no space. If you'd like to support the podcast, and we're going to hopefully keep doing these things and keep having lots of fun. Thank you guys so much for listening. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.